0: Romans chapter 2 is where we're going to look together this morning. Romans chapter 2. I thought it's a worthy date to mark down, not just because Brian has been officially ordained, but we have turned the page on one whole chapter of Romans in our study together. Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read from verse 1 down through verse 16. And a couple of things I want to point out and help you to recognize as we read. First, it's going to be very, very clear that judgment and judging is the theme of this section of the Bible. Judgment and judging is the theme. You'll see it show up many, many times. Secondarily, I want you to note the interesting interplay between two different kinds of people in Paul's mind. In fact, I, my guess is that he knows this not only you know, because of the demographics of the world, but by experience. The church at Rome was very diverse in the sense that it had people from all kinds of backgrounds. And he is going to be addressing people that he sees in two different camps, in a sense. Those who might judge and those who would be judged. And then finally, we are going to consider... What is our hope in ever escaping the judgment of God? And that's the, the kind of thing that we're looking for, because he's going to seal up every possible escape hatch in the beginning of Romans chapter 2. So those are the kind of things we're looking for, judgment and judging, two different kinds of people, and then how could we possibly escape? Let's read together. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law." Of men by Christ Jesus. We're gonna stop there. I would ask that you'd pray with me. I know we've prayed often this morning, but it's a pretty good posture to be in. Well, Father, we are generally very needy. We've not come here very impressive. We've got all kinds of sin, all kinds of distractions. We've got trauma and hurt and things that we've hidden away. We also have confidences, hopes, aspirations. We've come here this morning looking for things. And in the midst of all of that, we are so grateful that you are able, you're capable, you meet needs constantly. But God, I do ask. I want to be bold enough to ask now specifically that you would meet this one need. We need eyes to see and ears to hear. We need truth. We need the gospel to be seared down into our souls. So help us. I pray that we would not be too dull this morning. Enliven us, make us awake to the truths, the the glories that we confess. God, I ask that I could be helpful. I want to benefit your people and be faithful to Scripture. So please, give me your spirit and give us as your children your spirit. Father, we're asking, so please give that good gift. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By the time you get to the end of the first chapter of Romans... Filthy, rotten, no good, God-suppressing, inventor of evil kind of people have been put in their place. You know, those kind of people who should know that they're bad. I remember one time, maybe this was in a popular culture thing and someone just borrowed it, but I heard it from a man one time talking to someone about their sin. He said, well, that is bad and you should feel bad. I remember just thinking, wow, this guy gets to the point. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, everyone who is bad and should feel bad has been put in their place. And so now we turn to the beginning of chapter 2, and I think that Paul is noticing something, or he is aware of or recognizes the potential that there might be a certain kind of person that got through all of chapter 1, and rather than being humbled, has gotten a little more smug. In fact, there might be some people, even in the very church that he's writing to, and certainly in the greater culture, who are thinking to themselves, I'm with you so far, Paul, I can't stand people like that. They are constantly, constantly sinning or pushing away the knowledge of God. I don't want to put sounds in their mouth. I know it's words, but sounds in their mouth. But it's as though he got through all the way of chapter 1 and there's a few people standing behind him saying, Mm-hmm. Did I do that effectively enough? Did it pass the test? You know what I mean by that? I think everybody has an inner mm-hmm. hmm and so at the beginning of chapter 2, he repeats a refrain from the 20th verse of chapter 1 to make sure that there's no one around who excuses themselves from the dastardly, deep nature of the fall of sin. I believe that what chapter 2 is pointing out, if in chapter 1 he has wrapped up all of those Gentiles, all of those who are godless and running from God, he's wrapped them up into the judgment of God. Now chapter 2 he's going to turn and say, "Now listen, there's no one who's going to escape and he wants to wrap up the righteous. Much has been made of this, I, I, this question and I think that it's a key to the it's a key to the whole chapter really, when he says, "Therefore you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, the question is, well, who is you? Who is you? There have been many attempts to describe exactly who is you. The most common, and I think probably holds the most weight, is he describing those Jewish unbelievers and potentially even some of those Jewish believers in the church those who believed and had built a life on doing things the right way. Doing things, if they couldn't do it perfectly the right way, they satisfied themselves that they had at least done it just a little more righter than the people around them. And so it is probably firmly in view that any one of those people who is an overachiever, those people who are determined to make a way and to get a good score on the test, those kind of people likely of Jewish origin, Paul Paul wants to turn to them and say, I just want you to know I'm not just speaking to the godless. This is a new story. In fact, the good news is going to go further, but for the good news to go further, the judgment needs to go deeper and wider. He wants them to listen. So probably Jewish people, both converts as well as those who are on the outside, Pharisees who aren't quite sure of Paul's teaching some more imaginative ideas have been put forward as well. I think it was FF F. Bruce who surmised that potentially he is writing to a contemporary of his day who would have read what he wrote and he imagined this being written to Seneca, the great stoic philosopher. To which I might say, well that sounds fun, but but what? here's the good point of that idea. It is true that we can sometimes create a very flattened landscape. We need to simplify things to understand them. There's nothing wrong with simplifying things, but oftentimes we can simplify the righteous moral people in the Bible as just the Jewish people, and then everyone else was like just wanton debauchery all the time. The reality, of course, is that there was many people in many societies coming from many different perspectives who were attempting to ask and answer questions about ethics and morality and doing what is right and how to live a good life and how to aid society, the people that they were a part of. And so that idea would say that, yes, you know what, it's not just religious people, and by religious people I mean Jewish people, who have a problem with a judgmental spirit the greater world, in fact, I would say the idea of those who would moralize, those who might judge, is a human problem, not just a Jewish problem. So in addition to the idea that it would be religious people of the day, those whom Paul was most familiar with, those many Jewish converts who potentially even planted the church in Rome, perhaps having, coming, having come from Pentecost, but also those moral teachers, the good teachers of the day and then could i just add a third could i dare to add a third to potentially sweep up us to get us up together with this little group i think the question maybe the better question for the day is are we in this you is it possible that people like us who are in fact religious people like us many of us who want to do what is right may have a tendency toward this kind of attitude That we major on the judgments of others, but minor on the judgment of self. I wanna talk about two concepts in these 16 verses. If by introduction I'm giving you the idea of who he's speaking to, I wanna talk about two concepts. Two concepts that'll be helpful, I think, to understand this section of Romans chapter 2. The one is the idea of uneven scales. I wanna talk about uneven scales. And then secondarily, if you're keeping a note pattern, number two would be inescapable judgment. Uneven scales and inescapable judgment. Here's what I mean by uneven scales. First of all, can I just point out that Scripture is very, very clear that God hates uneven scales. He loves clear and fair standards. His standard is the fairest of all standards. Uneven scales whether to rip someone off or to tilt something in partiality toward another, God hates. So here's a few of the places in this section that we just read where it seems like uneven scales are being used, and Paul is pointing it out. He says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you do the very same things. You do the very same things. He goes on in verse 3. What's the problem with this judgy person? He says, you who judge others, you practice such things, you judge those who practice such things, but you do them yourself. He says to them in verse 4, you who are calling others to repent, you're the one that's presuming on the riches and kindness of God, not knowing that his kindness should lead you to repentance. Well, what's the inference from that? The inference from that is they didn't know his kindness should lead them to repentance, they haven't yet found repentance. They're calling for all others to repent, but they have not demonstrated repentance themselves. He says in verse 5, they have a hardened, impenitent impenitent heart. He says later in verse 11, that God shows no partiality. The indication here being that the human tendency, perhaps those religious moralizing people here, are showing partiality. There's a different standard and door of, of entry for one type of person and a different door and a standard of entry for another type of person uneven scales. I think in order for us to really get to the heart of our need for forgiveness, a heart to be remade from the inside out, we need to confess, to admit, and to understand a human tendency. And I'm saying a human tendency. Some have it more pointedly than others. Some of us are very good at being good and very happy to point out the not good in others. I know that some of us struggle with you know, self-image and maybe you're not as good at this kind of thing. But I would just say there is a human tendency to be very strict on the behavior tone and words of others, but very lenient on those things in ourselves. In other words, I would say it like this. I believe that one effect of the fall is that when confronted with our own sin, we are often unable to see it. And if and when we do see it, we are very quick to make excuses. There is always a reason that we did wrong. It was someone else's fault. It was a bad day. We didn't have enough sleep. I hadn't had caffeine yet. I didn't mean it like that. In other words, what we desire from the rest of the world is the way that we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves often based on our motives, or at least what our stated motives are, our best intentions, but that is not the way that we often speak of others. When you accidentally curved into the lane and forced someone to break, it's because you didn't see them there and they were going too fast. But When someone else actually ser- accidentally serves into the lane and you can't see them there, they are the most selfish, fast, work-hungry, inconsiderate human being alive. We judge ourselves based on the best of our intentions. We judge others on the rawness and the worst interpretation of their actions. This is often the way that we treat one another. We see pride so evidently in others. Oh, can you just believe this person? Don't you see what they're doing? Can you believe how much better they feel or think they are? But we miss it. In ourselves. I mean, isn't this the testimony of the New Testament? Isn't this where commands come from? Like, hey, before you go take out the speck in another person's eye, why don't you remove the log from your own eye? I mean, other than being a very funny illustration and thing to think about, the better thing to think about is how is this even possible? What's going on there? How can you pick out specks but not see logs. And the answer is this, that all of us in our deep, deep desire to be declared righteous, we know we've lost a righteousness. This conscience bears witness to us. It accuses us. It calls us to a standard that we can't feel. In our endless, relentless pursuit to be declared righteous, we will do whatever it takes. And oftentimes what it takes is uneven scales. Now, here's the interesting thing about uneven scales. Paul says to them, you judge, but you do those very same things. And the idea there is essentially this, if God used your standard, you would fail. Now, this is a profound idea. This is what he tells the moralizing people. So what he tells the righteous people, those who have done good. Here's a basic question. If you had to stand before God one day and be judged just based on your judgment scale, how would you do? Based on every word uttered, every motive, every motive that you have put down or judged or thought from another, how would you do? Francis Schaeffer once said it's as though God has God could simply in his judgment pull out the invisible tape recorder. That's such a quaint little illustration nowadays. Kids, a tape was something that could be used to record audio, <laughs> and, and they don't have it anymore. But just imagine an audio recorder. God's placed an invisible one around. This is a Schaefer idea. He's placed an invisible recorder around your neck. It captures every single word uttered, uttered. But more than that, this thing's very sensitive. It captures the thoughts. It captures the feeling toward others. And then what if you stand a judgment day one day? Yes, even you Pharisees, the most moralizing and judgy of you all. What if you just stood before God one day and the entrance door to heaven was barred only by the standard that would be revealed by that recorder? And I believe what Paul says to them is you just got to understand you'd never pass even if it was your standard to get in. God shows no partiality. He's not going to let you have a different standard than the one you held others to. How absurd is this? One of the paths that everyone must take in a dying to self, in a recognition of the reality of this world and our own spiritual need, is to finally judge ourselves with an fair, or with a fair and even scale. In order to grasp Jesus, we must reset scales. In fact, we must give them up entirely and realize that it is God who sets the standards and we must submit ourselves to Him, which, which is why it makes this next point, this next idea so oppressive. It turns out that we will have to stand before God. There will be an entry point into heaven. There will be an actual judgment. And so we might say, well, let's just read and figure out, well, what's going to go on? Maybe it's the fact that God doesn't like judginess, so he just doesn't judge. And that's the thing we can't, we can't uh, mistake here. Human beings should not use uneven scales of judgment for others than we do ourselves, But don't get the idea from the Bible here that what that means is God just hates judginess. And he'll just, you know, standards get so hard and he'll just he'll just tell everybody, don't worry about it. As though God's gonna grade like a middle school PE teacher or something. It's like, I don't know, they showed up. They're here. The turnstile of the pearly gates is like flinging around and everyone's like, what's happening? I don't know, they came, might as well let them in. This is not the way that God is. So starting in verse 6, we find Paul saying, now I don't want you to be mistaken, God is absolutely going to render to each one according to his works. And God is going to carefully parse this out impartially. More than that, those who have rejected or heard the law but not done it and judged others, they'll be judged by that same standard. And those who do not have the law have sinned against the spirit of the law that God placed in their hearts, so everyone is going to come underneath this judgment. So here's the second idea. We use uneven scales, which shouldn't be be so, and if you stood before God, one day, using your own standards, it would be bad news, bears. But worse than that, there is an inescapable judgment. And here's the idea. God's standards are so much higher than our own. You wouldn't pass your own test, let alone God's test. Remember when Jesus showed up? Now, remember, this is Jesus who is the good news teller. He is the kingdom come. Remember when Jesus came And he went to the Pharisees, he went to those who were listening. And here's the amazing thing that happened. This is really, really odd. Sinners and no good rotten people loved him. Now, you might think to yourself, well, maybe because he was like that great on the curve gym teacher. People love when they can get away from something. Now, here's the crazy thing. Sinners loved him, even though what Jesus did with the standard is he raised the bar. Remember when Jesus was talking about righteousness, he said, oh, you who think you're righteous... I just want you to know, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses surpasses all the Pharisees, you're not even going to sniff heaven. Jesus took the law that was a standard that no one could meet anyway, and then he said things like this, Oh, no, 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 don't be judgy and feel great that you're not a murderer. I want you to know, anyone who has felt hate in their heart for their brother is guilty. Don't be the kind of person who says, Well, at least I didn't punch him in the face. If you spoke of them as a fool, you've harmed them. Somehow, Jesus came and he raised the bar of righteousness. And yet, there was something in his person and his being. There was something about the way that he offered himself that sinful people loved. And I think this is why. I think this is why. Because it was the sinful people who knew that they weren't going to make it on their own merit. They welcomed Jesus as the possibility of an offer of new merit. It was the Pharisees who hated Jesus raising the standard because they thought that up to that point, they just might make it. They're the kind of people who thought, no, you can't change the rules now because we got this nailed. We're going to win And what Romans chapter 2 does, is it turns towards all of those who might have been judging and saying by the end of chapter 1, yep, that's what we've been trying to tell them. And it takes all of those people and wraps them up into one big, inescapable pile of people who fall short of the standard. There will come a day When the worst of us will stand before God and he will say, unless you have perfect righteousness, you cannot enter here. And there will come a day when the best of us stand before God and he will say, unless you have perfect righteousness, you may not enter here. The question becomes, well, then who can possibly escape? And Paul has said that it's potentially the reality that those who have tried the best and been the most judgy, they're the most far gone. I think what's happening here between Romans 1 and 2 is a, is a very theological kind of driven way to retell my favorite parable in all of the Bible. You know, the story of the prodigal son is not the story only of the prodigal son. It's been famously said that in different translations of the Bible, one German, one for instance, you know how your Bible probably when you look through it, it has little titles of what's coming next? Jesus and some fish. Now you know what's coming. Well, many of our versions of the Bible say the prodigal son, and now what are you looking for? You're looking for a Romans one kind of person. Oh, a prodigal, I bet he's just dastardly. Right? You're looking for that kind of person. In some translations, like I said, German one most famously, at least the first that I came across. You know how it titles that little section? Two Lost Sons. Two Lost Sons. Because isn't the whole point, isn't Jesus telling a story to Jewish religious Pharisee kind of people isn't the whole point to get them to see the exchange and the relationships between not just one son, the prodigal, which everybody knows that's not good. Don't reject the authority of the father and don't think you can make it on your own and don't squander every good gift that he's given on pleasure and endless self-satisfaction. That goes nowhere. Everyone knows that. Romans 1. Mm-hmm. How does the story end? What's the punchline? How does he bring it home? Well, you see, he tells a little story of a very moral, good, faithful, sturdy brother who wouldn't, didn't even want to come for the party, wasn't there for the homecoming, who was actually angry that the father had changed the rules, who thought he was earning the dad's love the whole time, Who was mad that he didn't get what he thought was coming to him? You never killed the fatted calf for me. Wasn't I do that? The whole time he thought that he'd worked, he was just about to make it. And I believe that there are those kind of people, there's potential for that in all of us. And what the father needed to do to both sons is to call them home and to, to realize what grace looked like, to realize what love looked like, to realize that their presence and their place and their standing in the family had nothing to do with how they sunned. And that's hard for judgy people. That's hard for people who are doing well. That's hard for people who more or less had it all together. You know, it's interesting I'm grateful for an opportunity to think about that passage on a morning like this because I feel like I've also, throughout my years, taken the low-hanging fruit, which is there. I remember preaching the prodigal son story in a in a jail one time on a mission trip to Trinidad, and thinking, like, what a wonderful message for these people who are so far gone. And the more I thought about these two chapters, I think to myself. Man, I don't want to only use it like that. The question is, how many of us have a potential to be the son who stayed home? And maybe that's a little more relevant for people like you and for me. I want to take Jesus' parable a little bit further. In the celebration, the father kills the fatted calf. The father offers a sacrifice, something of cost to himself, to celebrate and to bring back and to demonstrate the reunion. And here's what people suspected, maybe what the sinners saw in Jesus, maybe what everyone hoped was happening. The question is, when Jesus came, was God preparing, was the Father preparing to call people home? Was he preparing to offer something of sacrifice? Was he preparing to celebrate a reunion The answer, of course, is yes. Why is it good news that Jesus said, unless you're more righteous than the Pharisees, you want to enter heaven? Well, it's good news because Jesus knew that one day he would offer himself and he would say to everyone who would listen, if you want my righteousness, you can have it. All of us, the worst of us and the best of us will stand before God and barring us from heaven is going to be a standard of righteousness that none of us can meet. How do we get through? How do we escape this inescapable judgment? What good news that Jesus came, that the Father sent at great cost to himself an opportunity, an offer of righteousness. And Jesus would turn to those who are stuck in their sins, like those Romans 1 people, and he he would say to them, listen, give up those sins, confess them, and come to me, and I will make you clean. And the same way, in the same breath, that same Jesus is so good that he can turn to Romans chapter two kind of people, and he can say to them, listen, 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 let go of your righteousness. It's not going to work. It's a fake kind. You're going to show up like a ticket at, you know, some sketchy guy outside the stadium gave you. You're going to show up. You think it's going to be fine. It's going to be scanned through. You're cast out. Here's what you need to do. Let go of your righteousness, and I'll give you mine. People only get into heaven based on works. Jesus and his works. No one else has cut it. No one else has made it. You will desperately need righteousness one day. This is not, this is not me judging. I hope with some sort of uneven scales. I'm telling you the same as me. You will desperately need righteousness one day. And Jesus Christ offers you his I would urge you to receive it. Let's pray. God, would you help us to be less aware of the sin of others and more of our own sin. Help us to be aware of the reality of our own sins. I do pray, God, that those who are stuck in patterns of, of sin and pushing knowledge of you away, that you would rescue them. But I also pray, God, would you rescue those who are just religious enough, those of us who like to do well. Please, Father, rescue us from trusting ourselves. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.